Welcome to the first episode of my new podcast, Canary Cast. Why Canary Cast? Well, instead of the official Senate pen, I wore a pen on my lapel depicting a canary in a birdcage. It was given to me by a steelworker in Ohio a number of years ago, uh, celebrating a worker's Memorial Day to remind me of the progress that our country has made for working people. At the turn of the last century, workers took canaries down into the mines. If the canary stopped singing, it meant there was poisonous gas or lack of oxygen, and the miners had mere minutes to get out. They didn't have a union in those days strong enough or to protect them or a government that cared enough to protect them. In the 20th century, we changed that. We passed strong labor laws to protect the rights of workers. Unions grew, millions of Americans worked to earn their way to a better life. Our economy grew, the wages of Americans grew along with it. Today, it's still American workers who power this country, but their hard work doesn't pay off the way it used to. People in Ohio and around the country work harder and longer than ever, but have less and less to show for it. For far too long, our trade policy, our tax policy, encouraged a corporate business model that shuts down factories in Toledo or Dayton or Mansfield, cashes in on a tax credit at the expense of working Americans, ships production to Reynosa or Wuhan or Beijing, makes those products and sells them back into the United States. Far too many of the jobs that remain don't pay enough in wages and benefits to compensate workers for the hours they put in. On this podcast, we're going to talk about what we can do to change that and make hard work pay off once again. That's why we're calling it the Canary Cast. The Canary reminds us of how far we've come and how much work we still have to do to support the workers who support this country. That means all workers, whether you punch a timesheet or swipe a badge, make a salary or earn tips, whether you're on payroll, a contract worker, or a temp, whether you're working behind a desk on a factory floor or behind a restaurant counter. The fact is, all workers across this country are feeling squeezed. So we'll be talking to a broad cross-section of folks from different industries, with different incomes, from different backgrounds, about what to do about it. In our first podcast, I talked to Ohio workers from the Whirlpool plant in Clyde, Ohio. These Ohio workers can compete with anyone in the world when they're on a level playing field. But foreign companies, in this case, like LG and Samsung, cheat the rules over and over again, trying to put Whirlpool out of business and its tens of thousands of American workers out of jobs. On the day we spoke, I testified at the International Trade Commission on behalf of Whirlpool and its 10,000 workers in Ohio, including 3,000 in that plant in Clyde. I'm excited to share my conversation now with Tom Bennett and Paula Cassiano and Jeff Postel. Uh, I'll start with Tom Bennett. Tom uh, is, lives in Clyde. Right, uh, he's worked right. at Whirlpool for a long, long time, more than three decades. Uh, tell us what your first job at Whirlpool was when you started there. Uh, the first job was back in our machine shop. And at that time, we milled a lot of our own gears and things. Uh, of course, that particular model has gone to the wayside with new improved models. But uh, been there 31 years, third generation Whirlpool employee. So grandfather, grandmother started Grand, there? Grandfather. How big was dad. the plant when your grandfather was there? Do you know? You know, that was back uh, 1952 when Whirlpool bought it out. Uh, There's a porcelain plant there at that time. and it did uh, make washing machines before. It only made them since. They, they were starting to make some washing machines there, sure, with a Bendix company beforehand. And uh, so he, he, he didn't know quite what to do at that time, if he should go with the new Whirlpool company or stay with the other company. And, you came to that plant 31 years ago. Did you expect to be here 31 years later? 
the the year after high school, I worked there a summer to go to college. And at that time, I said, I'll never. And what high school did you go to? Clyde High School. Clyde High School. Center of the Universe. And, uh, and of course, um, at that time, I said, I'll never be back. It was my first summer there. We all say that. Our yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh, after a few years, wanted to start a family. Time to get a good job with good benefits. And you have that. And you've had yes. it for three decades. Yes. Uh, Paula Cassiano is from Tiffin. Uh, she has been there. Of course, she's not nearly as old as Tom, but she has been there for a good number of years. Yes. Tell us about uh, you grew up where? So I was I was born in Springfield, Ohio, okay. but raised in Oklahoma. Okay. Um, I came back to Ohio, and I was going to work at Whirlpool one summer, uh, tw- almost 27 years ago now. And... Um, I immediately got into their apprenticeship program and became an electrician. So I went into skilled trades. Were you the first woman electrician there? I was the second, actually. The first one uh, was the class ahead of me. So I was the second class. Um, pretty game-changing, if you will, to have a female in skilled trades. And I would highly recommend skilled trades to anyone. It's definitely an uh, opportunity for a wonderful uh, life. Raised my sons, raised my now grandchildren. Um, they're following in the path my sons are, so it's wonderful. One of the one of the th- sort of untold stories about American manufacturing, unless you work in American manufacturing yourself, is is how many. I mean, what the what the very diverse levels of skills in these plants. I mean, the, you talk about maintenance worker. My my wife's. Uh, father was a maintenance worker at the at the um, utility company. It was then called the Illuminating Company in Ashtabula in the far okay. northeast corner of the state. Mm-hmm. And she never as a kid quite understood what a maintenance worker was. Her dad carried around a wrench that was maybe 12 pounds, and she's kept it on her desk to remind her what her dad did for a living. Mm-hmm. That's what enabled her to go to Kent State. But mm-hmm. but he could fix anything in the plant. Yeah. And that's what, you know, that's what maintenance workers do in plants and electricians and Pipe fitter sometimes, and how many electricians are on a shift roughly? Do you know at Whirlpool? How many of you are doing that? So I was at their Finley plant, and there were probably forty electricians in that plant. Much, many more in Clyde. Just the the facility itself is much larger. So what do you do as an electrician at Whirlpool and Clyde? Well, I'm not currently doing that role today, but at the time, what I did, I would uh, troubleshoot production equipment. So if the line would go down. My job was to go in there and make sure they. So it's more about fixing things than fix. making things with you as an electrician there. I also would, if we bring in a new line, I would build the panel, I'd do a lot of panel building, get the equipment ready. Um, so there's uh, the preventative maintenance tasks to make sure that everything is going so well. Would there be a team of electricians that would yes. do that typically? Yes. And you'd have other tradespeople working with you. As you were building a new a part of a new line, yes. What yep. other? Oh, so you have uh, millwrights or mechanics, uh, tool and die makers, um, folks that are specialized in reliability. So they might be lube techs. They do anal- analytic work for us, uh, predictive work for us. Just a great number of skilled trades. Okay, cool. Uh, Jeff Postel, Jeff. Um, I first saw Jeff when I was in Clyde speaking to, I guess, and I think I saw you there, Paula in the cafeteria mm-hmm. the day of one, one of the times I've been to this plant. Uh, tell me about your work there. Senator, I've been the, was Whirlpool from 33 years. Um, started in St. Joseph Division, right, and then came to Clyde. Was an engineer, and uh, everybody has this flavor that manufacturing is uh, an ugly type of work, but I'll tell you, it's not. 
is a great opportunity. So I was the, an engineering manager. I was into the different departments, ran every department around. Um, um, there was so many opportunities in manufacturing to, um, to assist and help and grow and develop. So uh, been with Whirlpool different divisions for many years. Where did you grow up? Uh, Jackson, Michigan was my hometown. Oh, so I'm from Michigan and uh, live in uh, Bowling Green right now. In great uh, Bowling Green. Yep, the great city of Bowling Green. So it's a it's a great place. Whirlpools and manufacturing is great for the the state of Ohio. Well, you think about the. I mean, the wages are good there. The benefits are good. So it's good for the hospitals around because if you get sick, you're a paying customer. It's good for the school district because you're paying property tax, and so does Whirlpool if you go to Clyde High School. Right. Uh, and obviously your wages mean, and, and the, the jobs of the, there's a plast, I learned this morning when I was testifying and saw you at the International Trade Commission that there's a plastics company that hires several hundred people in Clyde that, right. yes. that is there a sole customer, you guys, is all their stuff is sold to you? For Whirlpool in general, a lot yep, of different facilities. Yep, okay. it's Revere, yep, and they make uh, for our... Our dryer divisions, they send parts to our dryers, some dishwasher components. But I would say 80% of them is for Clyde in general. Listen to the way Paula, Jeff, and Tom talk about manufacturing. A few years ago, I was talking to an official in the last administration about how to best support American manufacturing. He said, you know... Everyone says in this country says they want more manufacturing, but no one wants their kid to do it. Too often when people hear the word manufacturing, think about dirty, dusty old jobs and the outdated offensive term rust belt. But today, Ohio's factories aren't rusty. They're innovative. They're high tech. They support good paying jobs. Let's listen as Paula, Jeff and Tom talk about their benefits at Whirlpool. Talk to me about, um, if you're willing, just talk about wages and benefits and what the plant means to you. And I don't, you don't need to talk about your own or, or if you want to, whatever. And you want to start, Paula? Just tell sure. me kind of how, how, you know, what your lifestyle is. So for me, um, as I said, I started as an assembler. I went into skilled trades. So I went from the lowest hourly role to the highest hourly role in wages. I came along with benefits, too. Um, so those are things that some folks don't think about it today. Do you remember what your first wage was when you six, started? Six dollars an hour. Six dollars an hour. And then yeah. when you went, when you became a tradesperson, you went to what? So the first year as apprentice, twelve eighty. Then when I when I finished my four years, twenty one dollars. So it's a it was a huge uh, change in my life. Um, and then from there, I was able to uh, go to college. Whirlpool helped me do that. So I got a bachelor's degree and a master's degree, which are wonderful benefits. Where did you get those? A University of Finley. Okay. Finley, Ohio. Not far. And I also attended Ohio What's Northern University. It's a, it's a joint. I have an HR and I have um, organizational leadership. So it's MBAs. Okay. And then um, I went on to management. So from there, I was able to, you know, be a buyer. And another benefit is... They, they allow you to kind of hone your skill set and the things you're interested in. So it's more about more than wages. It's more than benefits that of the hard dollars. You get to utilize your, yourself as a person. The doors in manufacturing are wide. They're, they're open. If you're marketing, if you're design, if you're engineering, if you're an artist, if you're, you know, you name a skill set, manufacturing needs it. And that's, well that's what I love. Tom, tell me about whatever you want to talk about with wages and benefits and what it means to your life. And 
Whirlpool calls me a production operator. I'm a, I'm comfortable with being called an assembler, so that that's not a problem. You know, HR gives us these wonderful names, but we still have the same jobs and same pay, so we can call myself a uh, assembler. Uh, one of the the big things uh, I, I'm probably making close to about forty thousand dollars a year as an assembler, and of course you have the benefits, so that that's really a, a really nice living. Uh, if you compare it to the auto industry, it's not quite as much. But I'm happy where I'm at. I'm I'm in a small town. Clyde's about six thousand people. So it's it, probably it, cost less than it would if it were in New York, too. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah. So you know, it, it's been a, a great way. I've I worked ten years in small business, and uh, the pay, the benefits, not there. And so when it came time, when it started family and everything, I needed a job that gave me uh, a good, secure. Uh, job with decent pay, with benefits, things of that nature. Let's think about how Paul and Tom talk about their work. For Tom, having the benefits Whirlpool offers is what made it possible for him to start a family. I was more struck even by Paula's comments. It's more than just the hard dollars, she says. You get to utilize yourself as a person. Her job didn't just pay the bills. It helped her advance her education, improve her quality of life. It gave her a sense of pride and optimism about her future. It's just as Pope Francis said, work, work is fundamental to the dignity of the person. That's why when we use terms like Rust Belt that demean our country and the work these people do, when we allow corporations to pay low wages while Wall Street fat cats rake in huge profits, when we allow contract or temp workers to be cheated out of the benefits offered to other full-time employees, we don't just hurt our economy, we hurt people, we hurt their families, and not just their pocketbooks. When we devalue work, we threaten the pride and dignity that come from it. Let's hear more. You were talking about um, the benefits and all. Well, what? Tell me about how about about um, pimp, uh, what re, how retirement works for a for a longtime whirlpool worker that's been there twenty five or thirty years, like you guys have. So we have a four hundred one k program, um, and that we can actually put money into that, and then the company uh, matches us to a certain percentage. Where they go five percent? Uh, they go seven. Uh, the first. The first couple of percent, though, the employee actually doesn't have to put anything in the kitty. Whirlpool just gives them money for their so automatically. Day. Whirlpool automatically put two percent of your wages in for retirement. If if you do nothing, you have you do some nothing. money at the end. Yeah, and then if you put in um, money, then they'll match up to that percentage, and uh, then um, the match changes with how our business does. So it's not a guaranteed match. What's guaranteed to us is that. Uh, we we do the good work that we need to do, uh, and you know you spoke to the ITC conference. What we are asking for is we're a land of laws and democracy, mm-hmm. and that folks follow those laws. So all things being fair and equal, that match turns out to be pretty good when we can compete fairly. Paul is talking about the trade case I mentioned earlier. Here's how it works. Whirlpool competes with LG and Samsung. Whirlpool manufactures here in the U.S. LG and Samsung manufacture overseas. They pay their workers much lower wages than Paula, Jeff, and Tom earn at Whirlpool. So they flood the U.S. market with cheap washing machines made overseas. That's called dumping. It hurts U.S. workers, and it violates international trade laws. So in 2012, Whirlpool filed a case before the ITC for illegal dumping from Mexico and Korea. 
But what did LG and Samsung do? They moved to China. They kept right on dumping. So Whirlpool filed another case. But in the meantime, these companies picked up shop and moved again, this time to Vietnam and Thailand. Starting to see a pattern here? It's what I call the whack-a-mole problem. I'm working on legislation that will make it easier for American companies like Whirlpool to fight back against repeat offenders. That will help with this problem, but we also need to retool our overall trade agenda to put American workers like Paul and Jeff and Tom ahead of multinational corporate profits. We'll talk much more about that in another episode of Canary Cast. For now, I want to leave you with Paul and Jeff and Tom's parting words. About 45 minutes into our conversation, I got called to the Senate floor to vote. Before I left, I asked them to share quickly what they wanted you to know about them and the work they do. What, what would you like to say? I, I've got to cast a vote in, in a moment. But what would you, you know, that, that line we were talking about in response to you, Jeff, about the, the guy that said that everybody wants to more manufacturing and want their kid to do it because they don't understand it. What, what, what do you say to somebody that's never set foot in Whirlpool, never set foot in the V8 plant in Fremont, never set foot in an auto plant, never seen manufacturing, never been in my father-in-law's utility plant. What do you say to them about the future of American manufacturing, why it's so damn important to our country? You want to start? You look like you're thinking well, about it. I would love to start. So, uh, you know, Whirlpool's slogan is Manufacturing Matters. And the reason I believe that we say that is because the roles are, are great. Um, but we also support our communities. Manufacturing supports schools. They support uh, United Way programs. We support Habitat for Humanity. Um, business after business, manufacturing matters. Uh, it's what we do. It's the heartbeat of who we are. And um, I think it's wonderful. So, I'll, I'll, Tom, I'll ask you it in a different way, and that was a really good answer. Um, you know, lots of things what people say can bother you. One of the things that people say that bothers me is when they call my state, our state, the Rust Belt. Here's where I explained to Tom what I told you earlier about my feelings about the term Rust Belt. And I asked ask him, what do you think when you hear politicians or pundits on TV talk about our state as the Rust Belt? Here's what he said. Uh, you know, that's hard for me because at the Whirlpool Division, everything's constantly changing. We, mm-hmm. we can't survive if things don't change. So we don't get things don't get a chance to get rusty yeah. because we had to develop new models, um, new concepts. Well, no, but no company stays in business if exactly. they don't change in this exactly. world now. But I, I really believe there's uh, so many opportunities. You know, people don't know about manufacturing. It's more longer. You know, you hear about Henry Ford and, and the, 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 the visions of the old assembly workers and manufacturing. That's not what it is at all. It's people using their brains, right? Yeah, we still have some manual tasks that we got to do. But I think that's probably the, the new manufacturing that, that people don't realize. And it's hard because we all have these biases and these stories from your great-grandfather how bad manufacturing is until you try it. You know, you really don't know what it is. And I don't think that was anything in this world. So that's why I think manufacturing, that's why I get upset when people talk about it's only manufacturing. It's, it's pretty damn pretty cool. I mean, we're, we're a manufacturing state. It creates immense wealth. I mean, it pays exactly. workers well. It helps communities at all the jobs that come about making the components that you assemble. Right. Tom, all, right. all of that. So. Exactly. Another thing is... Uh, the division is such a, I'm going to call it a big brother in the, the area. So not only are we helping with United Way, some things like that, I used to help with a, uh, the homeless shelter in Fremont. And it was just great to see financially how they help. Washing machines came in, volunteers come in, and 
from time to time, I see people from the homeless shelter employed there at the plant. And it's, and that's got to be such like a the greatest win-win. feeling. Exactly. So your um, your communities in, in, in Bowling Green and Tiffin and Clyde, uh, you have people that wish they could work at they wish they could work at Whirlpool when you talk right. to them, don't they? Right. All three yeah. of you. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. These workers are among the best you'll find anywhere. They're proud of their work. Their company is proud of the work they do. It's why I testified on the workers' behalf and on that company's behalf. We need to protect those companies that do right by their workers from foreign competitors who cheat. We need to encourage more corporations to invest in their greatest asset, American workers. That's why we need to keep having these conversations. If you have a story to tell about the value of work and American workers, email me at canarycast at brown.senate.gov. Canarycast at brown.senate.gov. Who knows, maybe you could be our next guest.